1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I recently spoke with Gabriel Finkelstein about his new book Emile Du Bois Neuroscience, Self and Society in nineteenth century Germany. Now this just came out in 2013 with MIT Press. This is a study of a figure who was, as Finkelstein shows really beautifully in the course of the book, really crucial to science and society in the 19th century in Germany and beyond, but a figure about whom we've not really understood very much. Um, Certainly not in terms of the impact and the different kinds of media in which his impact was instantiated over the course of his career and beyond. So Finkelstein uses this figure as a kind of window or a framing through which to understand larger transformations in the history of science, in cultural history, in the history of media, and in the history of what it's looked like to try to understand life, society, and the relationship of mankind to both of these entities. It's a really fascinating book. It's also quite beautifully written. The prose um, is really sensitive. It's really finely wrought. And at times, it's very, very funny. So it was a pleasure to talk with Gabriel about it. It. I hope you'll have a chance to take a look at the book and to read it. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. We're here today with Gabriel Finkelstein to talk about his new book, Emile Dubochemont, Neuroscience, Self, and Society in 19th-Century Germany. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Gabriel, and thanks so much for making the time to talk with me today during this second day of the new year. I'm really pleased uh, to talk with you, and I'm excited about it.
0: Uh, welcome and thank you. Good morning. Thank you.
1: So, Gabriel, could you uh, start us off as is traditional for the interviews for NBSTS by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically how did you come to work on the history of science in 19th century Germany?
0: Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. I've been thinking hard about that. Uh, you know, the simple answer is uh, I'm like uh, some historians of science are just failed physics majors. Um, But um, maybe a more complete answer would be that um, although I was very, very interested in science, um, I first got interested in history of science as a kid when I watched Jacob Bronowski's television series, uh, The Ascent of Man, and um, just really wanted to be that guy. And then, uh, although I did... uh, end up majoring in science, I always seem to gravitate to um, larger issues, uh, maybe meta issues of how it is that um, systems of rationality might differ in one context or another. And um, just to personalize that, um, my mom was a poet, my dad's a neurologist. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, bouncing back before bouncing back between uh, ways of understanding the world that were quite different personally in my family. And then when I was 16, I had the opportunity to go uh, to school in France for a year. And that experience really changed my life because it made me realize that there might be entire systems of rationality that were culturally dependent. I mean, things made perfect sense in France that would seem very strange uh, in this country. So, um, I guess it was those anthropological questions that were foremost in my study of science, and then uh, I found out you could make a career of it, and uh, just never really wanted to do anything else. So then the question is, why? Why nineteenth century Germany? Well, when I first started graduate school, I thought I was going to be studying French physics. Um, and then for a number of, of uh, reasons, I ended up switching to 19th century German biophysics. Um, I, I heard a lecture my first year in graduate school when we were covering the big survey class. Uh, they used to call it the Plato to NATO class of history. <laughs> yeah. And the instructor, Kathy Olesko, gave a really really interesting lecture on the um, biological and medical context of uh, the discovery of energy conservation in Germany. I had never heard anything about that. I had no idea, and I was absolutely fascinated uh, with that lecture and I grabbed her after class and started asking her a lot of questions and she just said, Well, this would make a great dissertation topic you know why don 't you study the uh, the so called 18 hundred forty seven group of German scientists who um, uh, were associated with with Helmholtz uh, and that would be Dubois, Moll, Ludwig and Hans Brücke and I said sure and that was in 1988 so I had my topic in 1988 and I just sort of finished up so uh, it was sort of faded um, but um there were other reasons, too. At that, at that time, it was a lot harder to get money to go to France. Uh, France was uh, better researched than Germany. Um, uh, I had gone to Berlin in, in a vain attempt to learn German before going to graduate school, and I found it uh, a much more interesting city and didn't correspond to any of the uh, silly stereotypes that I had about Germany. Um, and German history, although it's uh, in some respects maybe not as glamorous as uh as studying France. It's uh it's very interesting and uh there really were a lot of uh, opportunities for me to do uh some interesting research. So I just jumped on the topic uh, kind of uh, uh enthusiastically and my advisor who um, my late advisor is uh Jerry Geeson um said, Oh, a biography is a great topic because he had written basically two and there were times when I wanted to throttle him for recommending that. I had no idea what I was getting into and how big it was going to be, but it seemed, uh, it seemed like an interesting topic. Eventually I, I got rid of the other three guys, uh, Hemholtz, Bucke, and Ludwig. Uh, there are a lot of people working in Hemholtz. David Kahn has been working Hemholtz for, for, for decades. Uh, there's a good biography of Ludwig and I really didn't find anything about Bucke. I think his family has all his letters, but I found, uh, Well, I didn't find. I was uh, directed to uh, Dubois Mons papers, which are almost entirely located in uh, the State Library of Berlin. And they were beautifully cataloged by an archivist named uh, Eva Zisha. And there are about eight to 10,000 of uh, eight to 10,000 documents in that collection. So I, I had more than enough to work on.
1: So you were working in the biographical mode from kind of the inception of the project as a graduate thesis. Is that right?
0: That's that's right.
1: Okay. And that interest was maintained throughout until we get to the book that we're talking about today. So can you talk a little bit about, um, as we get into the book itself, about your choice of working in that mode? You've already mentioned that Jerry Giesen, um suggested that you might think about it in those terms. But what draws you to the biographical mode as a historian, as a, narr- as a kind of narrative tool and a, an aspect of the kind of craft that you're bringing to this topic? Yeah.
0: Um, uh that's a hard question to ask. Answer. It's like it's hard to explain why one likes what one likes or finds interesting. What uh, one finds interesting. Um, I think. Uh, to me, I'd always, I suppose, been interested in um, questions that I could relate to my own experience. In a sense, at a remove, so it's a remove in time and place. Uh, and I was very interested in. I'd always been interested in looking at the lives of intellectuals, um, even, even as an undergraduate, um, in history, I was, when I was studying, for example, Chinese history, I was very interested in the Chinese literati. Um, and, uh, this was an opportunity for me to look at, um, at, uh, intellectuals in, in 19th century Germany. But, um, I, I, I don't have a good answer for why uh, I think biographies are important other than a lot of other people think they are too because they, they remain popular. But I can't really say why a particular life should be more important or more interesting than, say, studying an institution or studying um, a, uh, an idea. I can say this. I felt a bit of pressure as a graduate student to try to do something new And uh, one thing that they don't tell you in graduate school, or at least they didn't tell me, is that a lot of dissertation and research topics are driven by source material. So um, there's um, an interesting essay on the history of uh, Hemholtz studies that was um, uh, borrowed from an essay on the history of Darwin studies. And um, very briefly, if you look at the evolution of those fields, you can see... That they go uh, in broad strokes from intellectual history to um, institutional history to maybe uh, what might be called cultural history. And a lot of that evolution is plainly driven by source material. So in a certain sense, the easiest thing to do or the first thing to do when you look at a topic is to read the printed material, the books on it. And then, in a sense, when that's kind of mined out, you go to the next level, which is to look at the maybe the manuscript material that's that's legible, and that might be material that's generated by by institutions, say scribes at in institutions or reports or things like that. And then finally, um, some of the uh, research in say Darwin studies or Helmholtz studies or studying any major major figure might look at manuscript material that's to be blunt, actually kind of hard to read, you know, letters, uh, diaries, uh, and then all the other, uh, sources that would reflect the reception, for example, newspapers, journals, things like that. So, um, when I was in graduate school, people were pushing very heavily cultural history. And then uh, it only later occurred to me that they were pushing it in part because it was the next kind of stage in the evolution of studying uh, science in fine grain in the 19th century. And also because they were sort of hoping that these um, maybe naive graduate students would plunge into areas that they didn't exactly want to do. I mean, there's a reason why no one had ever written Dubois and biography and and I thought about this when I was doing it. It's just this overwhelming lot um, amount of uh, manuscript material to to sort of thresh through. And uh, Susan Cannon has, has talked about that uh, in one of her essays on uh, the 19th century. The 19th century might represent, in her opinion, a limit of what's possible to do as far as historical research because there's just simply so much material that was written down that was generated people used to send mail four times a day uh, by the end of the 19th century in london so um i guess it was the promise and attraction of being able to research a topic in I I guess you might say excruciating detail and just see where that got me. That got me interested in biography.
1: Well, since you mentioned the importance of source material, let's actually um, go right there because this is a really beautiful way to get into, I think the, the meat and the body of the book itself. So, as you've uh, mentioned already, this is a study of emile Du Dubois-Rémont, and you call him in the first page of the book, the most important forgotten intellectual of the 19th century. Most of his fame, as you mentioned early on, was due to public lectures that generated really strong and sometimes very vituperative or very furious responses in a variety of publics, and we'll get to that um, absolutely by the end of our conversation. And you asked the question at the beginning of the book, how could someone so famous and so important end up so forgotten. And so the rest of the book, the rest of the chapters, take us through in a series of stages, um, I think four parts, each of which has uh, at least, I think, three chapters. Um, and you take us through his life, his work, and the kind of narrative arc that brings us to the way that he became this public intellectual and the kind of culmination of his story. Now, I, I mentioned this in light of your previous uh mentioning of source material because one of the most striking things early on in this story, in this first part of the book, Beginnings, when you're talking about his childhood is that he, his mother, when he's a boy, actually encourages him to keep a diary while he's traveling in Dresden as a youth. And you mentioned later, um, in sort of later stages of his life and in later chapters of the book, that this habit of keeping a diary persisted in his travels later in life. So it, in light of the importance of source material for crafting at least elements of this project, can you talk a little bit about his travel diaries as sources? Um, what was it like to work with these? in order? Are there any aspects of these diaries as sources that you found particularly interesting or illuminating or formative for the way you crafted the project?
0: Uh, sure. Well, I loved reading his travel diary because um, it was written in French. Uh, and m- some of our listeners might know, not know this, but in the 19th century, uh, when people wrote in German, they didn't use the Latin script. They used a Gothic script, uh, which is really, actually really hard to read. It kind of looks like saw teeth. It's like, um, if you can imagine a handwritten uh, version of the uh, the typeface that the New York Times is in, which is called Fractur. Uh, and that is really, really hard to read. So Du molls travel diaries, when he went to Switzerland, um, were kept in French except for, you know, occasionally you make notes in German. And then when he went to France and England, of course he kept them in French and English. So, I mean, just a silly answer is they were really easy to read. Um, It took a lot less time to decipher them than to look at his correspondence, for example. But, um, uh, I, I think it was interesting to see how he was sort of being shaped anthropologically as an observer of other cultures, uh, And I found that resonated with my own experience of having lived in in France and lived in Germany and paying attention to other cultures and trying to see if if, um, differences in the other cultures were significant, if they were indicative of anything more um, general than just what immediately struck the eye.
1: It's really interesting, actually, to um, to talk with you about this because, in many ways, and I think we'll see this as our conversation continues and as we work further into the book. Your um, it, it seems, at least from the perspective of a reader and, and a conversation partner, right now, that a lot of the ways you're talking about your resonance with him really reflect also and uh, sort of re- refract into. Your descriptions of his resonance with his topics of um, biography and writing, and so seeing the, you know the way that the figures that we write about often kind of mirror our own experiences of writing about them is is always interesting to me.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, and it's hard not to avoid um, the James Thurber error of. Uh, of just seeing your own reflection. There's a funny story by James Thurber about how terrible he was in biology and his biology instructor in college wanted him or high school, wanted them to, uh, um, draw something he saw on a slide and he couldn't see it and couldn't see it. And finally he saw something in the eyepiece and he sketched it very carefully and showed it to his biology instructor and his biology instructor, uh, just had a fit because he had just drawn the reflection of his eye. <laughs> So I tried very hard not to do that, not to just draw myself, but to actually see what was there. But it takes it takes a bit of training, a bit of looking to be able to try to be aware of what your own uh, context is and separate it from the context that you're looking at.
1: Well, so... Um- the early parts of this book, you take us through in these early chapters his childhood in Berlin, um, his schooling, and then you bring us into his university career and his life in Bonn. Now, he was inspired by a man in this part of the book named Heinrich Steffens, mm-hmm. who others had called, and this is um, in my quotations right now, I'm going to be giving just a tiny little glimpse into some of the really beautiful choices that you made here of vocabulary and snippets from the source material that you're working with. There were so many parts of this book that I was actually laughing out loud um, because so much of this material is is so funny and your presentation of it is so beautifully humorous while also being really respectful and articulate. So um, awesome job as a writer, by the way, incidentally, and as a verbal footnote, this is a real pleasure to read. So along those lines, um, other people had called this guy crazy incomprehensible, a fool, and a fake. Goethe had claimed that Steffens made him choke. So nonetheless, uh, the, the hero of our story, Émile de bois was drawn by his romantic philosophy. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of romantic philosophy to the development of the young Émile? How did this shape what was happening early in his life? And what's important for us to know about that in order to understand what comes later?
0: Uh, sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you for those compliments too. I tried. I tried really hard to make this book uh, readable, and um, I wasn't a very good writer when I started it. It took me a very long time to um, convert it into readable English. But I, for anyone who struggles with English, it's possible to learn to write decently. It just might take you forever. <clears throat> so. Um, uh. Uh. D- Dubois Raymond um, presented himself as uh, anti-romantic uh, in later life. And he, and, he, and he kind of covered up his early um, debt to this uh, naturphilosoph or romantic uh, German philosopher and scientist named uh, uh So that part was a bit, that was sort of interesting, but um, you know, for a while, I couldn't understand why um, some of my uh, my advisor and some of the other professors that I uh, was working with as a graduate student were so excited about this romantic debt um, of of what was later a kind of mechanist and reductionist. And I think I have a I have a theory. I don't know the readers uh, the listeners will tell me if this is correct. <laughs> that um, Foucault made the uh, the argument that a lot of modern science had romantic origins. And so here I was actually maybe providing some evidence for that, that thesis. I'm not really sure. Um, I think the important point is, uh, not to look so much at, um, uh, the methodology, but keep in mind the motivations of, uh, Dubois as an individual. And, um, then you can see lines of continuity in the science between the romantic questions, which were essentially question, epistemological questions. Uh, how do we know the world as a way of answering the question, who are we? And then to see those questions translated into scientific terms in the 19th century. So, for example, um, a lot of, there was a lot of attention to sensory physiology um, as a field of study in biology in 19th century Germany. And you can think of that as a kind of applied romanticism. It's a way of studying your relationship to the world. So maybe that's that's a kind of answer to that question.
1: And in fact, along these lines, one of the really striking things that also comes up in this part of the book, and um, as we transition from the second to the third chapter, and we look into his early training as a scientist, One of the things that um, you mentioned here, but that comes up repeatedly later, is the importance of questions of identity in different ways for his thinking. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? And uh, was that as important as it seemed as a reader to shaping how he's thinking about and conducting his science? How how do questions of identity loom in his development as a scientist?
0: Sure, that's a really good question. I mean, just the biographical form uh, is based on... this. I'm thinking about questions of identity because it's either how does the, the life shape the work or how's the life not shape the work? How's the li- how's the work independent of the life? So the first half of that equation, the life, you know, is a question of identity. But um, what I found uh, in this case study of Dubois-Aimont is that the biographical mode was a mode in which not only he thought, but his whole social class thought, uh, you could call them the, uh, the educated elite in Germany or the buildings, and as a class in early 19th century, uh, Germany, they, they really didn't have, um, uh, a lot of institutional, uh, or cultural antecedents that they could draw on to, um, create a sense of self, you know they're effectively a, a new class that more or less arose at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century, uh, as bluntly servants of the state. You know they were the credential elite that were um, educated to be uh, bureaucrats and administrators and teachers and 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 help the state grow. But unlike the aristocracy or even the peasantry, they they couldn't draw on on a lot of traditions. So. Not only is biography important for the story of Dubois and Mon but biography is important for the entire social class that um, went into 19th century German science. So that's why I focus on questions of identity, because you cannot understand um, 19th century German science unless you understand the people who generated it who are these educated elite and you can't understand them unless you see the pressures that they were facing in a sense to create a sense of self. So going back to your earlier question about the transition from romanticism uh, to science, in a sense um, I found once I had kind of flipped the question on its head, not why was 19th century German science romantic or German, but rather what was it about um, 19th century uh, German, the German buildings, tomb that drove them into science, that that the question of their social identity was more fundamental than the question of their intellectual research. Their intellectual research was an answer to that question, if that makes any sense.
1: It does. Thank you. So as we move into the next part of the book, speaking of generation, um, we move into an exploration of Dubois-Raymond's science, and specifically you talk early on about his experiments in animal electricity. Now, um, one of the things that's really interesting that's happening here, not only um, do you mention the importance of style, um, sort of written style, style in various forms to his work, and I think we'll um, have a chance to talk about that a little later, I hope. But you also talk about a shift that's happening here, and similar to what we see in many stages of his life, his personal shift is paralleling a broader shift in his cultural context, and here it's a shift, as you put it, from romanticism to realism. Instruments become really important to his practice um, at this stage of his work, and with animal electricity, and you mentioned in particular um, the galvanometer and mm-hmm. the frogs. So do you want to say a little bit about that, the importance of um, instrumentality and, and specifically a concern with measurement as it's shaping his work in this part of the story?
0: Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, what he does in in physiology is essentially applied the techniques that he learned in experimental physics from uh, two physicists that he studied with in Berlin to um, questions of um, animal function. So he was translating um, the instrumental techniques of measurement and investigation in the exact sciences to the biological sciences. So then you might ask, okay, why frogs? And there's a simple answer to why frogs. He was poor and um, uh, frogs were easy to collect in Berlin. And... um, uh, there was I mentioned in an earlier chapter there was a kind of different style to uh his physiology than say the French physiology. The French physiology under Magendie was much more violent. it was based in a surgical tradition that involved um vivisecting animals often without anesthesia and um that just wasn't the sort of thing that uh, was very popular in Berlin in the mid nineteenth century um, you know it wasn 't the kind of thing he could obviously do in his in his in his spare room he couldn 't cut open a dog. It was easier to work on frogs and um, he uh, i I speculate, but I think he may have identified a bit with the animals more than than his French counterparts. you know the French were really kind of cold hearted in their in their vivisection and and he didn't mind as much uh, braining the frogs and then then dissecting them. It didn't seem quite as cruel. But the the other question about measurement and about um, the physical techniques, um, you know, that's a very, very good question. And um, historians of technology, like, for example, I, I'm thinking of Keith Gispin's work, have talked about, the oversupply of engineers and um, scientists and mechanics in uh, mid 19th century Berlin that um, could not be explained by a economic demand for um, industrialization. There was already an oversupply. So this is part of a larger cultural um, trend in the first half of uh, 19th century Germany, to delimit and understand the natural and social world as exactly as possible in a way that can't just be explained through um, economic demand. And I think that's a really important point. I mean, Germany didn't really industrialize until the 1850s and 60s, but already in the 1830s and 40s, you saw a kind of mechanical style to, um, uh, to Berlin. There were a lot of workshops, a lot of, uh, of uh, opportunities for different kinds of people to draw on those resources. Uh, a perfect example is um, uh, Vanna uh, von Siemens, um, who uh, joined dubois Student Club, and dubois introduced him to uh, Georg Halske, and they started this telegraph firm, uh, and that was just simply because there were a lot of people at the time who were really interested in, in technology, and why that's so uh, I can't give a very good answer. I think it's very hard to answer why there is a cultural style in a, at a particular time and a particular place, but certainly it certainly is noticeable.
1: So there's a lot of other stuff that's happening in this part of the book. And rather than asking you to talk at length about it, I'll just mention it for listeners so that we can get to his underwear. I know what I'm talking about. Right. Uh, So later on um, in this part of the book, you talk about the importance of his work with the Society of Physics, um, the these chapters talk about the revolution of 1848 and also the importance of his scientific achievement in terms of making physiology objective, with objective here in the sense of relating to an object. And we talked about that a little bit in the context of his um, work with instruments and with frogs. You also have a chapter that looks really beautifully at Paris as the capital of 19th century science. And look at the ways that this shaped um, his ongoing career and the kinds of decisions that he made. Um, early in his life. Now that brings us to the love story. And so this is the, the third part of the book in which we meet the love of his life, his cousin Jeanette Claude. So this is a really exciting part of the book because it's not only a really fascinating story, but also lets us get into some really wonderful sources that you've unearthed in this part of the book. So let's start at the beginning. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this cousin? Who is Jeanette Claude and what do we need to know about her before we Um, meet them as a couple (laughs) Uh,
0: Thank you Yeah, Um, She was a a relative of Dubois-Mons related on both his father and his mother's side. I guess you could call her his uh, second cousin once removed would be a way of thinking of it She was um, like him a Huguenot Uh, in other words um, someone who lived who came to Germany, uh, as a French Protestant, they were of French descent. Her family, um, didn't go into science and, and civil service so much as into, um, uh, trade. And, um, uh, when she was a young girl, she left Germany and sailed to Valparaiso, Chile, where she grew up. Uh, until her teenage years, when her father died, and then uh, she and her mom and the rest of her family moved to uh, the Lake District in England, where they they stayed with uh, with an uncle. So she's really a, a very interesting person. She's cosmopolitan. She speaks German, Spanish, English, and French. Um, in a certain sense, I suppose you could say English is her first language because. Um, that's the one that she spent the most time speaking, uh, until Dubois met her. She came and visited him as a teenager. And then, um, he met her a few times. They, they went out on dates, I suppose, but he didn't really pay her much mind until, um, effectively his career started to stall, uh, after, uh, the debacle of the reception of his work in France. And, uh, when his career started to stall, he started to get interested in the idea of, um, well, of basically of his personal life. So I think he went to England, uh, to promote his work in part as an excuse to chase after this, this very, uh, interesting, uh, woman. And, um, Uh, She was quite interested in him and it didn't take very long for them to uh, get engaged and get married. And at that time, you know, engagements took a very long time. So she was living in England and and they were engaged basically for a year before he could go over to England again and marry her. And then – Um, bring her back to Germany. Although they did talk about living in England and for a long time he did consider it a serious possibility that he might find a position in England and set up up a household there with her. So to answer your question about the sources because she was living in England and because he was living in Berlin they exchanged a lot of letters. There are about um, I don't know two or three hundred manuscript pages of letters uh, in the Berlin state library that discuss that top that are basically his correspondence with his wife. And um, uh, that took me a long time to um, read and annotate and transcribe, but they're a wonderful. Um, um, they're a wonderful. Look into uh, the domestic relations between two bright, funny, interesting uh, young people in 19th century Germany. And they show that he negotiated with her uh, the conditions of their existence and tried to compromise uh, in order to make her feel comfortable in Germany. He tried to compromise on issues of gender, compromise on issues of of, um, their domesticity, of the kinds of life that she would lead. And of course, in the 19th century, women were much more circumscribed in their opportunities, but he was aware of that. And he knew that he would, she would be giving up quite a deal, uh, uh, coming to Germany, which he said was about 50 years behind England in terms of what he called refinement of manners. So he knew that she would have had more opportunities for fulfillment, uh, In in terms of her occupation in England, than if she came to Germany. So he was at great pains to try to make her feel welcome and comfortable in her new life and talked a lot with her about the kinds of life that they might construct together. And I found that that part of the research was totally unexpected. It contradicted most of the gender history that I had read up to that point. And there was only one other. Study that I read that confirmed uh, what I was finding in the letters. There was a, a historian named Anna Charlotte Trepp who looked at the family archives of Hamburg merchants and looked at how interested uh, the men of that time in the early 19th century were in their families. And this sort of goes against the stereotype of the Victorian husband who spends all his time in the club with his his chums and is not really interested in his wife or kids.
1: And in fact, in this part of the book, his friends are actually encouraging him to have a more robust family life. So I think one of of my many, many favorite... Little passages in the book uh, that speaks to this, as one put it, a good wife and a healthy child are better for one's temper than frogs. Yeah. So, so you talk about these letters, and I think he's, you know, he's sending Jeanette, I think, eighty-seven letters, or roughly two a week through their engagement. I have some favorite parts of this, and so I, you talk about um, his main aversions being superstition, insensitivity, rings, and lap dogs. And there's this wonderful part of the letters where you recall. Um, Or you relate his discussions with Jeanette about how he's really glad she's not beautiful. He says, I'm proud that you're not beautiful and gives this description of um, why it's great that she's not beautiful. And so there are lots of uh, moments in here um, that you, uh, that you talk about one of which I acted out for my husband last night. There's this letter I'll just mention for listeners on page 135 that begins in the fall, in the fall and talks about how when he's murdering his mornings um, as a doctor, or when he's murdering his mornings um, during his work, he's actually thinking on being with her, Jeanette, and his family and if he's in a place where um, he's with other people he has to like make this weird scrunchy look on his face that makes it look like he has a toothache or that he's sneezing the way they do in England, as he put it but if he's by himself, he leaps about the room on his left foot, smiling the whole time and punching the air around me and I encourage listeners to actually try that um, because it's It's kind of fun. Um, So these are some of my favorite moments, but what were some of your favorite moments in this letter? Did any particular um, letter or moment in any of these letters stand out to you as being particularly surprising, as kind of transforming the way you were thinking about what was happening here, or as just being really um, particularly amusing for you?
0: Uh, Sure. Um, I like when he talks about um, how... Civilization correlates to the smallness of rooms. <laughs> so <laughs> he says that you know he spends a lot of time um, finding uh, a house for them to live in, an apartment, and then later you know they they buy a country house, and he spends a lot of time looking into furnishing the rooms and decorating them, and he claims that it's low class to buy a really, really big place and then have it be bare of furniture and that a more refined person would get a smaller house um, and then try to furnish it well and beautifully. I'm always trying to make this argument to my wife (laughs) myself uh, because we have a very small place. Uh, and why we, why I don't think it's a good idea for us to move to the suburbs and buy an enormous house and then not have any furniture in it. So I thought that was funny. And then you mentioned the underwear part. I think that we oh, should, yeah. the underwear part, I actually photocopied in that letter and put it up on my door because <laughs> it's in English. I'd, I'd read a bunch of letters from um, Dubarimel's mother-in-law, and they were really dreary. His mother-in-law basically just whines the whole time after they're married. Letter after letter, she basically wants to move in with them. And they're not very interesting. And then this is, uh, I'm sure other historians have had this experience. You know, you just spend hours and hours reading really dull stuff. And then you find this, this gem. And that, his mother-in-law switches into English in the letter itself. She starts writing in English because she's horrified, uh, as she puts it to her daughter, that, that Emil doesn't wear any. And then there's like four four dashes you know, it's cause it, he doesn't wear any unmentionables basically. And she said, um, uh, what, you know, you couldn't buy underwear at that time, you know, you had to have it made. So she said, you should go have some made and run after him like the wife of any, any <laughs> decent philosopher would do so. So I, I was, <clears throat> I was really, um, kind of intrigued that Emile went commando and, and, tried to do more research on underwear in the 19th century and uh i found out there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of research on underwear in the 19th century in in a, i finally found a book on the history of fashion and it's written by a french scholar and he says basically underwear is we don't really know anything about underwear uh and then i i, I did a, a a grand search uh through interlibrary loan on underwear but then the first book that came that i ordered was a kind of photographic soft porn album of lingerie and then i immediately um canceled that search because i didn't want my new employer to think i was some kind of weirdo so i think uh Anyway, the the only other thing I can say about underwear is that uh, I guess Emil eventually did wear underwear because he talks about shredding it in one of his hiking trips. And then he – and one other point, the other mention of underwear in the book is he disparages – the fashion of wearing long woolen underwear that was popularized by another biologist named Gustav Jäger, uh, who's also perhaps more famous for discovering pheromones. So he thought that that was just um, uh, some kind of uh, uh, ridiculous um, uh, superstition. uh, Jäger Uh, In addition to popularizing pheromones, also had another theory of smells, which is interesting. He thought that uh, the reason that people hated Jews was because they had an instinctive aversion to the way that they smelled. So he had an attractive theory with the pheromone theory. And then he had a repulsive theory, which was uh, likes and and hatreds were were basically determined by smell. And Dubarimont probably thought this was all nonsense and so didn't really believe much in the fashion of wearing long underwear
1: so for listeners um, who are interested that little snippet of the letter about the underwear is on page 198 so I highly recommend reading it So even though, as you put it in this part of the book, experience didn't become real until he wrote it down, he was actually quite renowned as a speaker and as an orator. And um, in the last part of this section of the book, before we move to the final section of the book, you emphasize that he was a fantastic speaker and a teacher and um, mention uh, among the many as I've already been sprinkling this conversation with favorite parts of the book, for me, are um, you mentioned that he used classroom aids, including a frog alarm and a frog pistol. Um, among other things. So he was a great speaker. And it's precisely these speeches, not just as a teacher, but also more public lectures that become the source of his fame. And here in the fourth part of the book, we really get to this as the main event. So his speeches are enormously important in creating his reputation. And chapter 10 looks at them as contributions to cultural history. Um, we've talked a little bit already about the importance of his notion of and work in biography. And you talk um, in the book also about the importance of his eulogies. But do you want to speak a little bit to that before we get to his speeches or his involvement with eulogies and biography and how that's central in shaping um, what what we should know about him?
0: Sure, sure. Very briefly, um you know, he got interested in public speaking. I think because he saw the example of Alexander von Humboldt, who was one of his uh, patrons, uh, in the early part of his life, and he he grew to understand that uh, he could have much more success as a popularizer of science and as a public figure than he could as a scientist. You know, he effectively he got most of the results. Let's look at it this way. He got most of the results um, within six months of his application of his physical techniques to the investigation of animal electricity. Then it took him six years to write up those results. And the complete elucidation uh, of the question of the nerve signal or or, um, the uh, transmission of... of, um, Electrical signals uh, in the body and the peripheral nervous system effectively took 60 years. It wasn't really until 1902 that Julius Bernstein came up with the, what we now think of as a as the prototype of the modern understanding of nerve transmission. So he saw very quickly that science is really tough. You know, you can get you can get some results quickly, and then to get further, it's just diminishing returns. So he switched He switched to um, oration and writing, and his model here, in my opinion, uh, was the popular work of the French critic saint Beuve. saint Beuve, most people remember as the, the guy that spurred um, Proust to write. His, his great masterpiece because he couldn't stand St. You know He was originally going to call in search of lost time against St. Boeve. But St. uh wrote... St. Boeve is this amazing guy uh, in the mid-19th century who effectively wrote a um, biography a week for 20 years. Uh, they called them his Monday chats. Uh, and it's really... I would say Saint-Beuve and um, maybe Mark Twain and Heinrich Heine in those three languages are the the progenitors of modern style. They wrote uh, attractively and interestingly about um, lots and lots of topics, some of which were quite quite intellectual, but they did this for a wide uh, audience. And Du Boremont and he didn't read Twain, but he did read saint Beuve and Heine. And he tried to do more or less the same kind of thing that Saint-Boeuf was doing in his biographies or eulogies. He was trying to do the same thing in German.
1: Great. Now, this part of the book is really exciting because I think you could you really convincingly... Um, explore in this part of the book the significance of these speeches for how we understand cultural history and also for how we understand dubois Raymond's contributions to not just history of science, but also historiography more broadly, to ideas of literature and art and their histories and and, uh, how we can integrate them into broader understandings of uh, sciences and the humanities. So in this part of the book, um, in chapter 10 specifically, you talk about Two major examples of some of his speeches, um, or at least the chapter focuses on those. One of them is the German War. And this is very, um, uh, not very uh, laudatory toward the French, and it was it, it sold more than six thousand copies and got a very very strong response. You also talk about this example of his speech on civilization and science. Um, This seems to be um, a really important part of your analysis. It's a really uh, convincing, um, or you give a very convincing analysis here of this as an attack on established historical scholarship. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this speech. What's going on in this speech? What's important about it? And um, what's exciting for you about what's happening here in the context of understanding Dubois-Raymond more broadly?
0: Sure. Well, I can just say that when I started these final chapters this last quarter of the book I really w- wasn't aware of I hadn't read all of Du Bois's speeches so I didn't really know what I was getting into in a sense I I when I was working through his his life I just would kind of dump that in a file and say oh, I'll get to that later all right so then when I finally got to his speeches I was kind of amazed at how innovative and interesting, the things that he was saying. Du Bois-Mont's, um speech, Civilization and Science, um, according to another historian of of historiography, is the first major innovation in cultural history um, since the 1830s in Germany. And, and it argues, contrary to what we now accept as just normal history it argues for the importance of of culture as a measure of uh, human progress you know um, I think back in the 19th century history was much more political uh, much more oriented to you know kings and battles and there were a few uh, cultural historians working but they were marginal figures and, and often amateur and they weren't taken very seriously and so Dubois made two arguments he he said culture is central to the understanding of of history. And he also said, and science is the truest measure of cultural progress, which is a very I think intelligent argument. He said, one can't argue for progress in literature or the arts. You know, there's no way to to say that uh, Raphael is better or worse than Proxylides, or uh, that there are great exponents of of beauty uh, at any time he also argued that politics doesn't progress and this is more controversial he said there's been no improvement in morality over the course of history and people are mainly motivated by base uh, impulses and they do terrible things to each other and if you study political history the only thing there is to learn as he put it is that there's nothing to learn So he said, science is the truest measure of cultural progress because science is the only, um, avenue of human endeavor that is cumulative. I think it's, we, as historians of science, we should keep in mind that, um, uh, George Sarton, who many people take to be the father of our field, made exactly the same argument, uh, as Du bois uh, in the inaugural lecture for the Institute for History of Science at Harvard University, uh, and I don't think I don't think that that's purely coincidental. Um, but then Du bois made another interesting argument about science and civilization, where he said uh, that in addition to being the truest measure of of human progress, science will also destroy civilization. Science is. Both the measure and the, um, the the means by which civilization will collapse, because he said that science reduces all values to instrumentality; it reduces every value to uh, utility, and that that will destroy everything that makes life uh, beautiful and decent. So that was an interesting thing for someone to be saying uh, in eighteen seventy-eight, I think. And it sounds a bit like um, other uh, great thinkers in the 19th century. Most people are more aware of um, maybe Marx or Weber making similar arguments. Marx with money and, and Weber uh, talking about the iron cage of rationality. But Dubarimont made these arguments about science, and that's not something that's widely known.
1: Now, repeatedly, as, we, as you take us through different speeches that he's making, which um, sometimes are experienced by his audiences orally and sometimes are transmitted through print copies, to the very literate audiences um, that are taking in and responding to these speeches as written documents, the responses are very, very strong, um, and they're not not necessarily always positive. And we see this not just um, in terms of the speeches that you look at in chapter 10, but also when we come to chapter 11, where you look at his speeches about and his responses to and engagements with the work of Goethe and Darwin. Can you speak a little bit to um, his speech about Goethe specifically and why does this generate such a negative response? And then we'll move to Darwin.
0: Uh, Sure. Um, Well, I can just tell you anecdotally that I um, went to the German Studies Association, which a colleague of mine kind of once nastily called the Goethe Studies Association, and I was invited to a panel um, discussing critics of Goethe, and I just simply reported uh, on Dubois-Mon's um, uh, criticism of Goethe, mainly as a scientist. And after I I gave this short talk, there were um, Germanists in the audience who who looked absolutely stunned, and one of them said almost plaintively, said, well, if you take Goethe away from us, what do we have left? <laughs> and I think I think Goethe enjoys a privileged position in uh, German literature that is still unchallenged. And he's kind of the, you know, the Shakespeare and the Melville and, and whomever you can think of, the Joyce all rolled up into one. Goethe is... In German, Goethe sounds incredibly modern and beautiful at the same time. Doesn't sound stilted at all. And so, what Du Boremont was saying with this criticism of Goethe is, he was saying, "Look, we need to contextualize this guy. He's a brilliant writer, but he came out of a certain context in the early 19th century. He um, uh, was a bit like uh, Hamlet." And he was constantly advocating action. And Du gave this speech after the unification of Germany, and he was using Goethe as a as a way to say, "Well, Germany has followed Goethe's prescriptions maybe too well. We've, be, we've acted maybe too much. We're too strong. We're too powerful, and we need to think more rationally about things. And we need to leave behind." Some of these romantic values that are driving us because they're not doing us any good, and he did this kind of through code by attacking Goethe. And you know, I read this speech also. I give an interpretation of it that speaks to the politics at the time. And uh, you know, he just touched on things that hit a nerve, uh, and I think they they kind of set people off. I mean, some people didn't like the idea of the greatest German writer being attacked. Some people didn't like. Uh, du Bois most political implications that maybe romanticism and politics is not such a good idea. Other people thought that he just had a tin ear. Um, but uh, all I can say is that he, I, I think it's even true today. I, I don't think you could speak openly among literate Germans and attack Goethe and, and expect it to, to get out of there scot free, even today
1: he 's also a staunch supporter of, of Darwin, and in fact you characterize him in the book as the first Darwinist in Germany now how does just un- even just understanding him as the first Darwinist in Germany complicate the existing historiography of evolution
0: yeah that 's a great question um, well basically nobody knew this and i didn 't know this either and I remember once uh, I asked the editor of the the Darwin correspondence in Germany. I mean, have you heard of this? Did you know that Du Mormont was the first adherent to to Darwinism? He said he didn't know. And that's because the historiography basically says that Darwinism in Germany uh, is romantic, and most of it focuses on you know figures like Heckel. And there's a debate in Darwin studies that goes on, about how romantic Darwin was and then therefore how um, indicative German romantic Darwinism is of Darwinism and I I don't know enough about Darwin to weigh in on that debate and I didn't really want to but I what I did want to do was say well yes it is a little more complicated because Du Boerimann was a mechanist um, he was not romantic and he was a staunch Darwinist. He read Darwin's second edition, I believe. His best friend in Britain was Darwin's physician. His name was Henry Benz Jones. So he was alerted early on to the publication of The Origin of Species. His wife came from England, so he's very interested in English culture. And I believe that the second edition was published in late January or February of 1860. And by April, over spring break, read the book and become convinced that Darwin was right. So he and then for twenty years he taught Darwinism in his university lectures. He began those lectures in the winter of eighteen sixty-one, and he taught the theory in what we would recognize as a modern, complete understanding of it. And he taught it for twenty years, and um, nobody really much seemed to mind. I I propose the hypothesis that Du became a Darwinist because he's a Lucretian. He. he He believes in a world of matter and motion, and he was looking to extend that mechanistic view of the world that he had described at the um, cellular level, at the level of the laboratory. He was looking to extend that view of the world into the level of organisms and the environment. So in a sense, he was looking to modernize Humboldt's romantic vision of a giant unified cosmos with a mechanistic understanding. So um, it complicates things because it suggests that, um, that there isn't so much a national styles debate between English mechanists uh, on the one hand and German romantics and says that there are compete- competing understandings of Darwin's theory in England and in Germany from the get-go and that some people took Darwin uh, to um to be romantic and progressive Uh, and others took darwin to really be a um champion of a completely mechanistic understanding of biology and um uh the other remarkable thing is that nobody in germany really seemed to mind that dubarimo was teaching this stuff i mean maybe that's i don't know if you want to touch on this but uh He didn't get any flack from the teaching of Darwinism until he gave a very short obituary uh, tacked on at the end of his speech in the early 1880s. And then when he gave that obituary, uh, you know, the proverbial uh, stuff hit the fan. And he aroused a lot of ire from the conservatives and the Catholics who uh, said, that he should basically be fired as a professor, that he had uh, committed treason and les majesté; that he had disparaged the foundation of the German state, and that he was inculcating uh, materialism in the minds of students, and he was basically a degenerate. And um, uh, I thought very hard uh, why uh, nothing had happened politically about his teaching in Darwin his teaching of Darwinism for 20 years and why in the early 1880s um, all of a sudden people should get so up in arms about it why there should be such a negative reaction and I came to the conclusion and again it's just an interpretation that Darwin uh, in Germany at that time was really a symbol of uh, socialism the socialists held Darwinism to be Darwin to be their champion so when Du mont stood in front of the Prussian king and his ministers and said uh, very bluntly, uh, Darwin is the Copernicus of the organic world. The Catholic Church is a backward and, and malign, not malign, but a retrograde institution in that the modern world uh, belongs to mechanistic biology. He was really suggesting that he was citing with the socialists and against the conservatives in a period when the socialists had recently been banned uh, from German politics. And that was quite an astonishing thing for a German university professor to do in, in, uh, in public.
1: Now, the, um, the last thing that I'll ask you before, because I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but before we come to our concluding, closing questions, I do want to just ask you um, maybe just one thing about the final chapter of the book, which is Limits, which takes us into the most famous of his speeches, a speech called The Limits of Science. Um, now, this is really, really fascinating. It gets into his... Thinking about consciousness and the relationship between consciousness and the possibilities of science and scientific knowledge. Um, can you just say a little bit about that speech, and in particular because you chose to close the book with it, so this is a kind of culmination of the story. It's a culmination of his biography. What um, do we need to know about uh, this speech and about the context and what's happening here, in order to bring our understanding of Du Raymond to its climax.
0: Sure, uh, thank you. Um, well, Du Raymond wasn't the first to suggest that there were limits to scientific understanding. Um, you know, he was a mechanist, and early on, he thought that he was going to be able to explain everything through mechanism. And then, as he was preparing those those popular lectures to his university students he he said later he realized that there were two limits to uh, mechanism that uh were just unbreachable he mechanism could never explain the experience of consciousness and mechanism could never found uh could never fully fathom the nature of matter and he he called that he used that he used religious terms uh to describe this kind of uh uh, conversion to doubt. Uh, and I, I I had I called it a negative epiphany. Uh he see called it his road his day of Damascus uh in reference to um when Saul became Paul uh in Christian liturgy. So um he had discussed limits of science uh for for a long time, and then later, later in 1872, at an important meeting of German scientists, he he pronounced these limits to science. Now, he wasn't the first person to say that we'll never understand the nature of matter and we'll never understand consciousness. People have been saying this for hundreds of years, but he was the first to attempt a kind of proof, so to speak. Uh, and I've heard from another philosopher of mine that that uh, that that is innovative and interesting. Uh, let me just mention that a lot of the philosophy of mind today, a lot of the discussions, really, uh, uh, in a sense, doesn't say very much more than the kinds of things that Du bois and his colleagues were saying in the 19th century. And Huxley is another example of someone who thought very hard about these limits. Tyndall in England, I think, borrowed quite a bit from Du bois Um but. there there was a big discussion about the limits of science in the 19th century. And, I think it's still relevant today. A lot of people are interested in philosophy of mind and uh, people are interested in neuroscience because they they suspect that it will give us clues into how the mind works. I think it'll give us clues into how the brain works. I don't know if it'll give us clues into the mind works. I tend to believe Du Boimel's arguments, but maybe that's just a matter of temperament. Uh, more generally, um, I close the book with the discussion of the limits of science because I think it it's the kind of... Um, and makes it, the narrative of his life um, intelligible. The first half of his life um, are, is focused on these questions of identity and questions of discovery. And then the second half of his life, uh, after he has that negative epiphany, is a um, meditation on how uh, one accepts limitation. And I think that that's both Sort of psychologically and personally interesting uh, when you look at getting older when you're young you're you're more adventuresome and when you're older you uh, come to acknowledge um, you can't do everything and I think that's interesting as a discussion of the of the arc narrative arc of science where science is uh, some people argue running into some fundamental questions of limitation. And I also think that that's maybe most interesting in a narrative arc of um, German history, where Germany, in a sense, uh, parallels in its story. Uh, the story of Dubois Boremont. It starts out young and ambitious and insecure, and then it becomes um, powerful and confident And then the question is, where does it go from there? Dubois is suggesting uh, counseling, resignation and limitation and restraint as the appropriate response to a nation uh, that is now powerful and confident as opposed to transcendence. And I think that there's a lesson in there uh, for uh, people who live in the United States, that maybe there's something that we could learn from this figure, uh, that A 19th century German might have somewhat something to teach us about um, acknowledging our limitations and uh, accepting resignation or at the very least restraint in our understanding of the world.
1: Well, that's a perfect note on which to bring this to a conclusion. Um, Gabriel, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me. And even in this time, there's a ton of material in the book. It's a very rich study that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: Sure. Um, I want to point out that um I discovered a lot of things about this guy, and this guy dubois Raymond is very interesting um, for a lot of different kinds of uh, areas of scholarship. You know, he you mentioned history, and you mentioned philosophy, but he was also innovative in sports. Uh, he in the arts. He was an early champion of uh, photography. Uh, one critic said uh, he um, was the first historian of cinema. Um, in terms of um, historiography, he predicted that Europe would uh, sink into genocide. He predicted the um, that would run out of fossil fuels. He he discussed environmental degradation and and uh, climate change. I mean, he was a really brilliant and interesting guy. Uh, very cosmopolitan, very very thoughtful, and I think for that alone, he's. Um, worthy of consideration the the other point is that I tried very hard to make this story um, readable and not overly technical and people have told me that they found the story uh, surprisingly accessible for it being a history of science so I hope that even though people haven't heard of Dubois more I hope that they might be encouraged uh, to take give them a second look
1: and you know, it, I can echo that it's extraordinarily readable, and the underwear and the frog pistols, and it's also peppered with some really fascinating and really great anecdotes. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you?
0: Yes, um, because because of his interest in historiography, I I thought I might write a shorter. Book and something that's not going to take me twenty years this time. Um, a shorter book on these amateur challenges to the discipline of history in the nineteenth century. So I might look at uh, Du Boremont as a German, Hippolyte Ten as a Frenchman, and then also this man named Henry Thomas Buckle as an Englishman, all of whom um, wrote very popular, readable, interesting. Histories that challenged our profession uh, at its core, and it's my contention that our professions retreat into um, historicism or kind of relativism is a way of avoiding those challenges by these nineteenth-century um, uh, cosmopolitan amateur uh, figures, and I think that's a story that that is worth. Um, Uh, broader audience. And then after that, I'm not sure. I mean, after that, I think I'm working on the history of memory right now, but I'm not quite sure what I might do after that.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again so much for making the time and best of luck with your current research.
0: Thank you so much.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very much for listening. And we will see you next time.